So we've got a lot to do today, so let's get going. Take a deep breath, put both feet on the floor, close your eyes if that's helpful, and just do what you need to do to be here, be present. Open your heart and mind. And may grace be in our heads and in our thinking. May grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. May grace be in our ears and in our hearing. May grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. May grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. And may grace be at our ends and at our departing. So we take our guidance from Jesus, who didn't exclude anybody except those who thought they needed, knew who needed to be excluded. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are celebrated here. So um, Linda Fogg, sitting right here, has agreed to be the head of those, no, you're not the head. You're not the head. I'm the head? I'm not the head. She's a major player in the event that's coming up the last day in September. Um, one of the questions that we'll be getting with some of that today and the latter part of what I have to say is being able to gain some clarity about your own identity about who you are. And one of the tools that spiritual directors use for uh, helping people gain some sense of self-identity is a personality typing system known as the Enneagram. The word Enneagram stands for nine types. It's a very, very ancient typing system. It's not, it, it's kind of like the Myers-Briggs on steroids. But it's, it's something that spiritual directors do as a, as a way to help people become aware of what um, their passions are in life. And our passions can be either positive or negative, like the polarities of a, a bat battery that can work in our favor or they can work against us. Um, as, a, uh, as a seven on the Enneagram, my passion, passion is gluttony. And, and um, so that can lead to an Epicurean view of life where you can appreciate the finer things in life, or you can fall off of that into a more negative needy, which I'll talk about later also today, place. And let's just say that a seven has the hobby of buying books and buying magic tricks. <laughs> just say, for example, then that person might end up buying more than they need <laughs> if they're not careful. So um, I've, I've asked, been asked a lot of questions about, well, I don't know anything about the Enneagram. I mentioned a book called The Enneagram Made Easy, but I'm going to make this really, really, really easy for you because I've engaged a spirit, certified spiritual director who's an expert in the Enneagram, whom some of you know, Brooke Summers Perry, 
is going to come here on September the 10th and do an introductory course on the Enneagram. So for those of you who don't know it, not are familiar with it, uh, you know Brooke, some of you. She's a wonderful person and a wonderful teacher. Um, you can go look her up on her website. She's just absolutely uh, delightful. But she's going to come here on the 10th of September to do this introductory course on the Enneagram. And this is free for anybody who wants to come. Uh, it will be online that Sunday. Uh, so if you want to come for that, you're able. And then on the 30th, of September, Suzanne Stabile is going to be here, and Tim has walked out of the room, but the um, the registration for this is going to go live this week, and I want to let you know that uh, so that you will be the first to know. So um, we write what goes out as the summary for this class. Tomorrow, it goes live, as most of you know, if you don't get the summary on Tuesday morning, uh, by 8 o'clock, the content of today will be in your mailbox, and there will be information then and hopefully a link about how you can register for this event. Once the word gets out through the wider publicity at St. Paul's and people at other retreat centers like Holy Name in Gethsemane and other places in Houston hear about this. This event will sell out. So um, she's very, very popular. Um, Sherry and I got to hear her for a day in um, Albuquerque. I think that's where she was at the time. Did you all go to that event where Rizzo and Hudson did the Enneagram? You don't remember? Well, anyway, she, she was there, and, and uh, she was funny, and she's a great teacher, and so I hope you will go to that. I think you'll like it. It'll be good. Okay? All right. You sure you don't want me ahead of it? I thought you were. Okay. Let's begin. First of all, I want to congratulate you on the wise decision you have made being here today. I mean that. I think that, you know, this is an investment of a, a few minutes of your precious life, and I appreciate that you're here, and I think it is a wise decision, and I hope you get something that's very beneficial for you out of this time together. But I got these words from clever ad and copywriters who sell us stuff. Uh, during the last six months after we moved into our new home, we have had to buy a significant number of new items. Big items like couches and coffee makers and vacuum cleaners and small items like linens and tables and you know, stuff like that. And um, almost without exception, on opening the box and looking at the instructions, the warranty card of the instructions. The first words we see are, congratulations on your purchase. And I think the reason that these smart people put those words there is that they know that there is this nasty thing called buyer's remorse. And that usually the remorse is in proportion to the amount of money you've spent on the item. You know, you get it home, you open the box, and you think, a rat. Now, most of you know that one of my passions um, in life is magic. I've been involved with magic since I've been in grammar school. 
And um, this is embarrassing to admit, but I think that your teacher ought to model the truth. Over the years, I have purchased thousands of dollars worth of magic. And um, a few of the even more expensive items that I have purchased, I get no tangible item in exchange for my money. I get either written or video instructions. But I can promise you that over the last number of years, every item I have purchased begins when you open the box and look at the instructions with congratulations on your purchase. You have just bought something that will make you the life of the party and the envy of all your friends. It doesn't say that last part. That's just implied. I can think of nothing that is more disappointing than getting a magic trick and reading the instructions and finding out how it works. Because once you see how a magic trick works, I promise you, you will be disappointed. <laughs> it's very disappointing. I, <clears throat> I recently bought um, a magic trick. Um, we have house guests this weekend. Sherry's sister, niece, and nephew have been staying with us. And I showed Addie and Jack separately a new magic trick that I'm working on called Think of One. And um, the effect is, you can correct me if I'm wrong, the effect is that the spectator gets to shuffle a deck of cards and um, they think of a card, just think of a card, and then there's a procedure and the magician is able to divine what the card is. Without asking, just, he knows. And with Eddie, when I did it, it failed. But with Jack, when I did it, the response is, oh my God, how did you do that? And, you know. So I didn't get any tangible thing when I bought this effect. I just got instructions, video instructions these days. And uh, so the video instructions include a view of the trick being done, performed, and then the magician instructor comes to instruct those on, who've bought the trick on how to do it. And first thing out of his mouth, he says, this works with a, I'm not going to tell you. And, um, oh, I went, rats. That's so disappointing. But then he ended up saying, and this is another part that's very disappointing about it. He said, if you practice this for half an hour a day for the next three or four weeks, you should be able to do it. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it's not push button. It's not automatic. You see where this is leading. It's true in any area of life that um, learning to speak another language, mastering a musical instrument, doing surgery, flying a plane, being a parent, on and on and on. However, in the Western world, especially in the West, we have come to believe, especially when it comes to religion or our spiritual life, that things should be easy. The church in which I was deposited as a child and the religious instruction I received was clear. Salvation was as simple and easy as 
ABC. Literally, ABC. There were the ABCs of salvation. And they were admit you are a sinner, believe in Jesus Christ, confess Christ publicly, and that's it. That's all there is to it. Now, if you think that this is ancient history, after I had written this today, yes, this week, yesterday Matt Russell and I were involved in doing a committal service for Jerry and Jeannie Martin's son. And on the Matt picked me up graciously and we rode to the cemetery and Matt stopped for gas. And in the car in front of us, on the back window, there was this in Spanish. And they are the ABCs of salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, believe that Jesus, God raised him from the dead, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the last line in this in Spanish is, do you believe this? And if so, that's all there is to it. You just assent to a propositional statement, and you're saved. And I hope, my friends, you know that that is horse feathers. I would use another word, but I'm in church. So there are two passages in various places in the script, Christian scripture that have been the inspiration for this time today. First is a passage in Matthew. Those of you who attend the worship services know that uh, this year our lectionary readings in the gospel are all during this season of the year from Matthew. We just have one parable after another, after another, after another in Matthew. It's a really, the, the people who put the lectionary together, the wisdom in that, how they pair the scriptures is just amazing. So in, in Matthew, Jesus tells these parables. Most of, most of you are familiar with some of them, the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in the field, all of those parables. And at the end of this series of parables, um, Jesus says, are you starting to get a handle on all of this? And the disciples confidently respond, yes. And then Jesus says, then, you see how every well-trained student in God's kingdom is like the owner of a general store who can put his hands on anything you need, old or new, just when you need it. Now, there's no doubt in any scholar's mind that this passage was created by the writer of the Gospel of Matthew and that the writer is referring to himself as this wisdom student, which, by the way, is one of the things that the followers of Jesus call themselves before the word Christianity came into effect. They were part of wisdom circles. And so he had been doing precisely that in telling these parables, in bringing forth things that were old from the Jewish tradition as well as new understandings of them in that tradition. So earlier in Matthew's account, Jesus is quoted as saying, don't look for shortcuts to God, 
The market is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. ABC's the salvation. Don't fall for that stuff. Even though crowds of people do, the way to life, to God, is vigorous and requires total attention. So digging into the Jesus tradition deeply, which we're on our way to doing, we're going to be dealing with material that will sound familiar. My intention still is to do a really deep dive into um, the Lord's Prayer and connecting that up with a prayer that Reinhold Niebuhr wrote that many of you know is the Serenity Prayer, which is a great prayer. But we're going to look at it, hopefully, in new ways through new lenses. And though congratulations on your purchase is in order, I also want to be aware of buyer's remorse and the difficulty that is involved in picking this particular path. It's exciting, it's fun, it's lightning, it's uplifting, it's full of joy and freedom, but it's also work. That's why I've called this time today the joy, freedom, and terror of unknowing. I had a friend say to me this week, I've reached a point in my life where I seem to have a different doctor for every organ and body part. <laughs> and I resemble that remark. <laughs> I am so pleased for all the advances in the field of medicine and healthcare that have taken place. I mean, it's just amazing. This friend had surgery this week for a hip replacement. And he went in on Tuesday morning. He came out on Tuesday afternoon. And the condition of his being released was that after surgery, and recovering from anesthesia, he had to get up out of his bed and walk from his bed to the nurse's station. And if he could do that, he could go home, and he went home that afternoon. It is amazing what is being done now. Um, as a heart patient, I know, and going to um, have annual, every six month exams of one kind or another, the instruments that they use now to to be able to take a video of my heart and hold it up and look at it in three dimensions on a computer, it's just amazing what they can do. It's just so wonderful that they can do that kind of thing. There are advances in every other field that I can think of, and they are all met with this kind of thank God that we are being able to make this kind of progress, except maybe with AI. People are beginning to wonder about some of the dangers involved in AI. But when it comes to embracing the advances and discoveries that have been made in the field of biblical studies, that's a different question. Someone copied me on a letter that was circulated about my teachings. This is about 20 years ago. And the person was very critical of me and uh, offered proof of my low character <clears throat> by saying, you can't believe or trust anything he says because he is part of the Jesus Seminar. 
dismisses everything. I want to be clear, I was never officially a member of the Jesus Seminar. I did get involved with the Jesus Seminar, stayed involved with them. It now no longer exists, but I have benefited from what the research, the research they did, many papers that circulated independently that never got printed, then the books that came out of that, the relationships of people I met, Steve Patterson, Marcus Borg, people, been wonderful for me. I'm really so grateful for that. Uh, but I was never officially a member of the seminar. The Jesus Seminar produced two really great books. The first one, I mentioned these before, the five gospels has the five gospels and the order in which they were written. Then the Gospel of Thomas. This book is still available. It's no longer being printed, but you can buy it secondhand or if you want to pay the money for new copies. In the beginning of this book, they tell how this Jesus Seminar came together, who made it up, how they worked, how they made their decisions. They wanted to bring this kind of research to, to the public, and that's why find this. Robert Funk, who was the genius behind the Jesus Seminar, a very able uh, scholar of biblical languages, he came out with his own um, Gospel of Jesus, which we worked in Ordinary Life through this book at one time. This is during the time this building was being renovated, some of you remember. Um, this is a very readable book. You ought to own this book. If you're not familiar with the Jesus narrative, this is a great way to just get, a, get the flow of it, of what the actual Jesus story was, was about. Um, the Jesus Seminar produced a second book, which we have not gone through in this class, and I don't really have an intention of doing that, but I do want you to know about it. It's called The Acts of Jesus in which, uh, in the first book, the five Gospels, they go through the sayings of Jesus, and in this book, they go through the acts, the deeds of Jesus, the miracles, and, and uh, other things. So that's very good. Uh, the, the Jesus Seminar was a creation of a research group called the West Star Institute. The West Star Institute is a research organization dedicated to this cutting-edge scholarship um, on history and religion, with this, as said, as the goal of making this research available, accessible to folks like us. So in 2013, after the Jesus Seminar kind of went away, the West Star Institute formed another seminar, which has not gotten the publicity that the Jesus Seminar has gotten, called the Christianity Seminar. The Christianity Seminar has also produced its own book called After Jesus Before Christianity, um, a historical exploration of the first two centuries of the Jesus movements. And I want to underscore the word movements in that. There was not one unified movement immediately after the death and resurrection of Jesus. It took 200 years before that that came into being. So we've not been taught this material. We don't know this. Most people who go to church don't know this material. Um, I certainly know that was true for me. Um, in growing up, I had some version of the belief, even after I got out of college, that the church that I was exposed to 
must have been pretty much like the church that Jesus went to. <laughs> Seriously, I did believe that because that's what your tribe teaches you. And um, so I imagine Jesus got up on Sunday morning and went to church, Sunday school, went, to, went back on Sunday night, went to prayer meeting on Wednesday night, that sort of thing. And we were all, if we're in the Christian tradition, taught some version of the story that the Bible is a book that was inspired by God. Some people say even written by God, dictated by God. And even if not, the Bible trumps the scripture of all other religions in the world. We got the best. The best religion and the best scripture. But if we're going to look at things like the Lord's Prayer and other things, we really need to take a serious look at the first 200 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus about what the movement was like. How did the Bible get formed? What stories did they tell? What kind of communities did they live in? What was it like to live in the Roman Empire in the year 50? 60, 70, 100, that sort of thing. And we did not have access to the data that this is until the last 80 years. It's been that recent that we now know more and more through archaeological research and all the things that. So uh, we're going to be delving into that, and some of that is hard for people to hear because we've been used to hearing it one way for so long that to hear something else just goes against the grain. So doing this religious Spiritual work is difficult for a number of reasons. For one thing, we've got to unknow what we think we know. And if we're not open to more freeing, fulfilling knowledge and information, um, which is what leads to more wisdom and understanding, then we stay stuck where we are. But this is the kind of material that I'm going to be teaching as we go forward, and I just want to give you an awareness of it. Um, what do we mean when we use the word God? What do we mean when we use the word self? And as I said, it exposes us to things that we are not used to, and it's difficult because um, we've been so sure of things. It's also difficult because life itself is difficult. Most of you have found that out by now. That's what I'm going to talk about today, about how we use our personalities to deal with this. I just had this thought that a lot of people hear about the Enneagram nine types, and they say, I don't want to be put in a group, so they dismiss it. They don't take it seriously at all. Before getting into what I, the, the stuff I've just introduced, I do want to point out again the, the danger of Christian nationalism to our country and to Christianity. One day somebody said to me, this one day this week, somebody said to me, 
Who would have thought that we would be enduring triple-digit heat? And I said, there were people a few years ago who were saying, this is coming. And, yeah, that ain't going to happen. Just this week, one of the more conservative of Christianity spokespeople, the editor for the Christian for, for a magazine called Christianity Today. Christianity Today was formed out of the Billy Graham organization years ago, and it is a very conservative publication, but academically respected. They have good folks who write in Christianity Today, but it is to the right on the theological spectrum. And the editor of that magazine got attention this week because he was criticizing people in the evangelical movement who are even to the right of him as saying, this is not a joke, folks, this is in the news, that conservative evangelical Christians are now complaining that Jesus is too liberal and weak. I wonder where this guy was in 2016. But this is one of the things that happens. It's happening now in the United States of America. We're not the only country. But when the culture, the politics of the culture begins to dictate the contents of the religion. Get it? That's happening out there in our time and culture. So one of the things that makes this difficult is that to be in a group like this puts you in a minority, puts you out of step with the most people who are out there. So this is what you see going on out there, and it's causing people to abandon the teachings of Jesus and uh, put other things in their place that more are in line with their political beliefs. Because right now, what I want to do is spend the rest of the time today paying attention to what is it that causes us in the development of our personalities as the self that we become to fall off the path and get in this, involved in this sort of thing. What, because any one of us is open to do, doing some version of this. Our culture is a culture of go along to get along. T.S. Eliot wrote, in a world of fugitives, the person going in the right direction will appear to be running away. So I've recounted in here before how uh, I taught a class here at St. Paul's, and then um, as a result of a very powerful dream, um, I decided to get into Jungian analytic training, and that led me to the decision to quit teaching and took a four-year hiatus to get training in Jungian analysis and um, just take some time off. And um, boy, that was a humbling experience because what I learned, among other things, is that the person that I had become up to that point in my life was getting in the way of the person I was being called to be. And I couldn't keep doing what I was doing. I had to just stop and reconsider the entire game. 
And um, what I've come to see is that what was true for me is true for most people. Some people have the luck to be able to take that kind of break, and some people have it forced on them through a disease, an accident, a divorce, something that gets to them. But each of us, each of us, you're not an exception. Each of us are born and enter a system not of our choosing. And in order to survive in that system, however benign it is, we have to learn to adapt and, and to change and respond. And, and everybody sitting here, me, you, <clears throat> I will try to quit repeating that. We're all the result of who we are as a, as a re result of all these respondings that we make to life. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, okay, here is something crazy I'm going to do today that's going to upend my life and the life of people around me. But we do it. We do that sort of thing. Nobody wakes up and says, i got a great idea. I'm going to become a drug addict. Or I'm going to become an alcoholic or a philanderer or a thief. But we do these things and they make sense to, the, at the, to us at the time that we are doing them. I cannot tell you, for example, over the years how many couples I have seen for marriage counseling so-called marriage counseling. I call it so-called because it's clear to me that most couples who come into marriage counseling have already, one of them at least, whether they know it or not, has already made a decision. This is, this is not going to go well. And I think that they want to come to be able to say to others, oh, we tried everything. We even saw a counselor. I've asked couples, and sometimes somebody will say, you know, I knew before we got married this is the wrong thing to do. <laughs> and I said, well, why'd you do it? Well, the invitations were already out. <laughs> I didn't want to upset my parents. My father had already paid a lot of money for blah, 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 and everything. I didn't want to upset anybody. She was pregnant. I mean, I don't know, get that. What I learned 50 years ago in doing this work is that all of us are always, everybody is always doing the best they can. Everybody. Given the level of awareness that we have and the level of energy that we have, we're all always doing the best we can. This is the best class I can teach today. You're doing the best listening that you can possibly do today, given everything. We're all doing the best we can. And a corollary, most people agree to that one, the corollary is a little more difficult. We're all always right. <clears throat> At least I am. <clears throat> so we learned growing up this great lie in uh, the way that we respond to things and people We'll do some idiotic thing, hurt somebody's feelings, say something out of line, and say, well, it's just the way I am. You just have to accept me. This is just the way I am. No. It is the way you have learned to be. 
It is the way after a series of respondings, your personality develops so that you can say this is just who you are and I can say no, this is who you have become. Your personality is not innate at that particular point. Occasionally we'll do something stupid and we'll look back and say, you know, I, 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 I don't know what got into me. Unless you're Flip Wilson, you remember Flip Wilson? Some of you, the devil made me do it. Unless we do the work I'm about to describe to you and wake up, we are all prisoners of adaptations to life that we have made. And sadly, in that process, we become strangers to our true selves. And this homecoming to who we really are which is what the invitation of Jesus is about, is the most difficult thing in the world to do. I don't want to kid you about that. It's hard work. That's why we have this phrase in our culture, go along to get along. And usually, our responses are so deeply buried. I'm 86. And uh, recently, in a session with my own spiritual director, who is a trained Jungian analyst, I presented a dream which I had had, and it, because it was a disturbing dream for the first time in 86 years that I can remember, I had this dream where I was in my paternal grandparents' house, sleeping in a room upstairs. Disturbing dream. Um, I don't want to go into family history, but that grandmother was the one I refer to as the meanest woman God ever made. I'm in her house, and there's trouble downstairs in the dream that wakes me up. And and my spiritual director, bless her heart, has got the. the she loves me, and, and she's got the empathy of a gnat. Um, <laughs> both of those are true, because she just goes right to the heart of things and says, well, you got more work to do, don't you? And that's humbling and hopeful that at 86, I can still do more work. There's still more to do. Now, I'm telling you that story because I don't think you're any different from me. We're all alike in this, hopeful and frustrating. And because doing this work kicks off so much anxiety, well, just, we just decide to stay put, not do it at all. So just as I have been enlightened and guided by those books that I mentioned to you, so also have I been guided and enlightened by the psychologists and the philosophers that have gone on over the last history, particularly picking up speed in the last 40 to 50 years. That's one of the reasons I wanted you to get acquainted with Don Cupid's work, because he gives you this vast spread of history of philosophical and psychological growth, contributed to how people have contributed to the understanding of who we are. So there are people I can mention, Carl Jung, John Sanford, um, <clears throat> Sigmund Freud to some degree, Robert Johnson certainly, um, Jim Hollis who used to be here in Houston about my own understanding about how we 
uh, adapt to life. All those thinkers that I just mentioned say that each of us has two ways to respond to life. Um, they are the experience of being overwhelmed. Overwhelmed is not a word that my spell checker liked. And the experience of abandonment. These two things, each of us experiences coming into the world, and we develop ways to adapt to these things. Okay? These, our experience of these things and our response form patterns. And, and that these patterns stay with us throughout life until we become aware of them. They, they drive us. As strategies, they protected us when we were children. But for most people, they simply remain as coping mechanisms. Jim Hollis calls them shadow governments. They're governments that we're not aware of. That's what being shadow means. But in, nonetheless, they rule our lives until we reach sufficient consciousness and develop the emotional strength to break these patterns by becoming aware of them and stepping out of them. So the message of overwhelmment is the world is big and you are not. The world is powerful and you are not. So figure out how to deal with that and we do. Or you wouldn't be here today. So we have three major ways to deal with the experience of being um, overwhelmed. One is that we can learn how to deny what is going on. We may grow up with children who, with parents who are alcoholic or crazy or distracted or whatever. But we depend on those people, no matter what their condition is, to keep us alive. So we might deny a lot of things about them so that we can stay connected to our source of survival. Am I making sense? When I was first in training in the hospital here, um, we had a child who had been brought into the emergency room because his mother had poured gasoline on him and set him on fire. And I will tell you, there is no amount of academic education that can pr prepare you for that. I was not prepared to deal with the amount and degree of violence that exists in the American family. That's in American family statistically makes sense because that's where we spend so much of our time, but that there is so much of it is just amazing. So they bring this kid in and they're trying to take the burned clothing off his skin, and he is screaming at the top of his voice, Mommy, Mommy, I want my mommy. And she'd been the crazy person who did this. But that's how tight the bond is to those who we think keep us alive. <clears throat> One of the ways denial and avoidance show up in our adult life is procrastination. You know? I know this is important to do, but I think I'll watch YouTube instead. Freud was the person who brought to the forefront the, uh, in his exploration of the unconscious repression, you know, about 
Freudian slips and all that sort of thing. Carl Jung called it the, the shadow. We project onto others what we don't um, claim in, into ourselves, don't want to do that, don't want to pay my taxes. Or we learn how to comply, as I mentioned earlier. This is the go along, get along strategy. The psychobabble word that was popular 25 years ago for this is codependent. You know, the other person is always in charge, always more powerful, and we hate it. What do you want for dinner? Whatever you say, rats, I don't want her to make that decision. So, but in being codependent, we lose touch with the inner self. And the third response is to become overwhelming yourself, to become a bully. See power and exercise it. You could probably think of a bully or two in the political spectrum today, right? That person on the inside is a frightened child. There's nothing wrong with being powerful. Being powerful, power properly applied is a wonderful thing. Um, it's a healthy thing. But as a compensatory thing in a way to deal with overwhelmment, it leads to, if you get the right number of codependents under you, a dictatorship. And we've got in this country 40 to 50 million people who are willing to be in this position in this country. Unaware, not bad people, just not aware of what. Now each of these strategies shows up in your life, in my life, from time to time. It's being aware of these things that's the key. Now the experience of being abandoned has been something that has been uh, paid attention to in the last 50 years particularly since the end of World War II, um, causing psychologists and psychiatrists to pay attention to what they call attachment theory, about what happens if our attachment to primary caretakers gets interrupted or something like that. The first and most common response of experience of being abandoned and one's primary caretaker um, is to identify with that insufficiency. I'm not enough. Uh, I'm not good enough. Occasionally, you'll hear somebody say, uh, well, if you really knew me, you wouldn't like me. And that's this response of insufficiency. I'm not good enough. I'm not enough. If you had said that to Jesus, Jesus would have said, I do know you and I love you. All right? He wouldn't stand for that sense of insufficiency. Um, people who make this response are constantly shooting ourselves in the foot. We don't take the road less traveled. And of course, it has a reverse side. And here you see all those who feel the need to overcompensate in everything by showing off what they have, you know, buying a new car every six months or whatever. You ought to see my yacht that I got. It's really good. And, 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 you know, I'm glad those people have what they have, but they also are out of the sphere of, I don't have enough, I never have enough, it's never good enough. So, and then there is this need for self-assurance. Tell me that I did okay. Okay. 
Sometimes uh, I will ask my beautiful bride on a Sunday afternoon, well, what do you think of class today? It's a dishonest question. <laughs> I don't want to know what she thought. I want her to say it was brilliant. You get it? And we all do that. Now, I recommend that you copy the slide when it comes out on Tuesday or take a photograph of it now, print it out, put it on your refrigerator, because each one of us has these coping mechanisms that show up in our lives on somewhat of a regular basis. And it's being aware of them and learning to break these habits of awareness that begins to set us free. As I said, none of us wakes up planning to do crazy things, but we do. Each and every one of us, we became what we became because of circumstances to which we were required to adapt. And these adaptations can blind us to a path that keeps us from making the journey that we want to make into self and God. Am I making sense? This is, this is still part of that two-acre introduction to the 2,000 square foot house. We're going to begin. I promise you we'll build a house, but you need to know this stuff, to be aware of this stuff, because just notice what you reject and why, what pushes your buttons, what your projections are, what your transferences are. Those are so critical to being free. What are the, what's the trinity? Love, honesty, freedom. To be free to walk, we have to be free of these encumbrances. You'll never be free of them, but you can be aware of them, right? Be aware of them. I taught a class in here. Actually, I think there was some work being done here, and we were teaching in the building, of, in the sanctuary building, and I was teaching a series on the miracles of Jesus. And after class, this woman came up to me and said, let me get this straight. So you don't believe that Jesus was literally born of a virgin? And I said, no, Jesus was not literally born of a virgin. And we talked about that a little bit, about, well, if you want to say that he was, then you also have to say that all the other religions claim for miraculous births are true. Well, I don't want to do that. But ours is special. Well, so we talked about it a minute, and she said, I just am not ready to believe that. That's an honest response. I'm not ready to believe that. I have this dear friend in California. He's the first person I ever knew who's actually a member of Mensa. And he sends me a lot of cartoons that you see and memes and things. And um, he sent me this story this week about this little girl who was going to Sunday school. And she was dressed in her brand new dress that she got for her birthday. And she was running to Sunday school. And she's praying, Lord, don't let me be late for church. Lord, don't let me be late for church. Lord, don't let me be late for church. And she tripped on a pavement and fell, tore a dress, got a skin knee, got dirty. She got up and brushed herself off and continued running to church saying, Lord, don't let me be late to church. Lord, don't let me be late to church, but don't push me either. <laughs> so no one's going to shove you into doing this work. But it's an invitation to 
do what's necessary to become aware of the equipment that you need to make the journey into a more loving, freer, spacious way of living your life. You remember the overall theme I've given these times is love letters to modern mystics. So you're a mystic. I want to go back to those two teachings of Jesus from the database that I started from because now maybe they'll make more sense. You're starting to get a handle on this. So you can see how every student well-trained, can put her or his hands on anything you need that's from our history or anything that's new that's from every branch of science that's now available to us, telling us about ourselves and our worlds. You can put your hands on whatever you need when you need it to equip you for the journey. And at the same time, don't look for shortcuts to God the market is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. Don't fall for that stuff. Even though crowds of people do, the way of God, the way to life to God is vigorous and requires total attention. One of my colleagues said years ago, said, you know, <clears throat> putting a notch in your belief belt may hold up your pants but it won't let you run free. Isn't that beautiful? Wish I'd thought of that. And freedom is what the life of teachings is about. You know, these passages of scripture and things that we read from the mystics, they sound crazy when you look at them through Western dualistic eyes. But um, if you've ever written a love letter, if you've ever gotten a love letter, you know they're full of extravagant language, right? You know, I could eat you up. Or I love you all the way to the sky and back. Or time stood still when I first saw you. Think of you keeps me awake. Dreaming of you keeps me asleep. Being with you keeps me alive. I need you like a heart needs a beat. This is extravagant, wonderful language. Or how about this line from Meister Eckhart? You've heard this before, but now in this context. The eye with which I see God is the very eye with which God sees me. You cannot get your logical mind around that. Or how about a prayer he offered? I pray to God to rid me of God. Is that blasphemy? Or is that the truth? No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I'll see you here next week. Thank you. <clears throat>